Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Dynamic zero COVID no more in China? Over the past week, COVID policies in major cities across China have been changing rapidly by the day. Chinese Vice Premier Sun Chun-lan, seen as the central government's COVID star, has said new epidemic prevention and control measures will be implemented as the country faces a new situation, quote-unquote. What compelled this change in policy? How does China plan to optimize the measures and what may lie ahead in China's road to dovetail its measures with the rest of the world? I was pleased to be joined from New Haven, Connecticut, the United States, by Dr. Stan Vermond, professor at the Yale School of Public Health, from Nanjing in Jiangsu Province in southern China by Professor Wu Wei, director at the Center for Public Health Research at the Medical School of Nanjing University, and by Jeffrey Schlegelminch, director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University, joining us from Manchester, Connecticut, the United States. Professor Wu, let me go to you first. As I said, last week, Chinese Vice Premier Sun Chun-lan said for the next phase, progress should be made while keeping steadiness and measures should be optimized continuously with constant baby steps. So uh, does it mean that China has abandoned its dynamic zero COVID policy? And uh, will there be a fine balance between caution and softening of the measures? No, China has not abandoned, fully abandoned its uh, uh, zero COVID policy, but at least China is moving toward to justify the restriction and prevention measures. And there are three major reasons for this. One is the virus is very different from the virus we had last year and before last year. Uh, right now, the virus is much weakened. It does not really cause severe diseases. The second reason is that uh, we have been going through three years of prevention. There is a, a tremendous impact on the economy as well. And also the third reason is that people are going through whole three-year restrictions. Uh, uh, a lot of people are frustrated that their life is impacted. So I, I think those are the the, the major driving force while we need to adjust our policies. Mm. Dr. Vermont, how do you look at the changes that are happening in China? Do you think they're in the right direction? I think it's inevitable that uh, societies have to open up. It's uh, not uh, economically uh, feasible to keep uh, lockdowns uh, and the waves of lockdowns uh, as uh, rigorously as I think China has done. I understand why they've done it. They've tried to keep their citizens safe. But there is a point at which uh, vaccines are a powerful new tool, uh, and they do change the um, the dynamics considerably. The inactivated uh, vaccines uh, do provide considerable protection against hospitalization. Uh, they don't uh, give quite the um, level of antibodies that the mRNA-type vaccine does, but they're not bad. And uh, what I think would be really almost optimal is if we could use the Chinese uh, inactivated vaccines for uh, priming and then boosting with the mRNA 
that might uh, optimize uh, immunologic status of, of the Chinese people to uh, minimize the risk of serious disease. We'll talk about vaccine in just a moment. Uh, we'll try to leave some time for that. But uh, Jeff, let me go to you from the perspective of disaster preparedness. Uh, I don't know how much in a medical sense you can touch upon, but how do you look at the transition and the challenge that the country is facing while we're adjusting such an important policy in a country with 1.4 billion people and many different layers of preparedness, mm -hmm. of awareness, of uh, availability of financial resources and so on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, you know, it's not really a do no harm scenario. It's which approach is going to cause less harm than the other. And as my colleagues have mentioned, now that you have more vaccines and more treatments and things like that, the the consequences of, of, of getting COVID are not quite as severe as they used to be, although they're still very severe. And so countries are around the world and, and China in particular is trying to balance this, right? What is the, the, the measured approach to preventing infection and keeping it at a level that is manageable within the healthcare system that is acceptable within the population um, with a dynamic that's changing with new variants, with new countermeasures, and sometimes they work better, sometimes they work less than others. And then to your point, more, uh, uh, perhaps even more importantly, is in addition to the, to the medical sciences, the social sciences, as you mentioned, people approach this from different walks of life, um, different levels of trust. And so that has to be addressed as well, too, to help make sure that people are engaging in the behaviors that we want them to, to keep them safe. Yeah. Dr. Vermont, let me go to you because you have the experience of the United States. In the case of the United States, uh, the situation was approached differently and the number of deaths is still very high. Last time I checked was something like 459 a day in the United States over the past seven days. Um, is China potentially looking at a very drastic number of uh, confirmed cases and deaths? Are you concerned? We do have a big problem in the United States of vaccine hesitancy, uh, and we're only managing about 73% of the population having had even just one vaccine. And the uh, proportion of the population that's received um, the um, most recent booster, which includes an Omicron antigen, uh, is uh, well under 10%. So the lack of full coverage of vaccination and the inability of successfully boosting uh, the American population mm -hmm. is the central reason why we continue to have several hundred deaths every single day. Mm. I is believe in be... China, you have yeah. analogous challenges uh, and you will need to expand your vaccine coverage. Professor Wu, is that a, how big is that a challenge for China? Because we have an aging society, the population of uh, people aged over 60 uh, are very big in society. And last time I checked, actually this morning, uh, for those aged over 80, only 40% have gotten a booster shot. I mean, that's, com that's better compared to the United States. But still, um, is that going to be enough? to help people ride over this this coming wave, potential wave of infections as cities losing to a certain degree their measures? Well, that definitely is a big challenge because that vaccination rate is still uh, way too low. Uh, I think this is something actually we need to do. If we're trying to open up the society, we need to promote the vaccination of this elderly population and the people who have uh, 
uh, basic medical conditions. But overall, the population has 90% fully vaccinated. I think that would give us some confidence that we should be um, able to reach uh, more people in the elderly population because in the past, we haven't made sufficient efforts in this particular sector of, of the population. Is there work being done? I mean, I understand from what I see, the emphasis is being stressed that elderly people should go ahead and get booster shots, you know, that the pace should pick up. Um, how do you look at the efforts right now? Do you think that awareness is is there, that extra effort is is understandably needed? I, I think, you know, uh, right now, uh, if you look at the, some of the uh, public relationships uh, in terms of for, in the public media, that uh, we do pick up the speed in uh, promoting this uh, um, this effort. But I, I think it's uh, in the past, there was a mistake that we haven't put enough effort in uh, in convince this, uh, you know, those elderly people to receive vaccines. Uh, um, but, you know, I think it's critical that we should mobilize the communities uh, mm. municipalities and the people uh, to get more people vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, uh, again, in terms of uh, disaster preparedness, what is your biggest concern at this moment watching what's happening in China? Because right now there's quite a bit of confusion as policies, you know, adapt and, and get developed and the situation changing by the day, a lot of confusion, a lot of complaints, of course, and different levels of understanding and of measures. Some city are more open, more softer, other city are stricter. How do you look, what do you think is the, the, the most important thing to keep in mind for the administrators and for the general public? Yeah, I think in terms of uh, for administrators, you know, in a lot of ways, this is actually a more difficult time for policy decisions than early on in the pandemic, because it's such a gray area, right? We have vaccines, but there are new variants coming, and then you have new cases. And so everything is in a state of transition, and everything has some degree of uncertainty around it. And I think it's something to acknowledge and something to be very transparent about. Um, when working with communities, when working with individuals, I think one of the most important things really does come down to the behavioral science. You know, the medical science can create countermeasures and evidence bases and, and vaccines. But at the end of the day, why are people choosing to do what they do? What are their concerns if they're not doing it? You know, I'm concerned with this elder population that isn't vaccinated. Why is that? Why are they concerned about the vaccine? Is it an access issue? Is it a trust issue? Um, and a lot of times people need to hear it from leaders in their communities that that might not be traditional leaders. They might want to hear it from a professor or a doctor, or maybe someone that they that they see at the community center who they look up to in the community. So there's a lot of a lot of multi faceted work that needs to be done on the social side to make sure that these medical innovations are really achieving their full potential. Mm. Dr. Vermont, from the point of view of public health, um, the, another concern is the availability of uh, ICU beds. Um, China definitely not uh, on par with other developed countries in terms of preparedness in, in this regard. And there may be some panic the public awareness is not there about how to deal with the virus. It is something new. So people still have this fear factor. Um, what do you think is the most important job to do now? And what do you suggest if you were asked to the Chinese policymakers to focus on at this moment? There are ways to keep people out of the ICU. And Professor Wu has highlighted the importance of vaccines, particularly in the vulnerable populations. Uh, we also have therapies uh, in uh, 
in uh, 2022 that we did not have in 2020. The immunotherapies like Paxlovid is the trade name in the U.S., which is a combination of two drugs taken twice a day, can be used to keep people out of the ICU. And if China can source the enough of this uh, drug, make it available to persons who have incipient disease, we can substantially blunt the uh, the impact of the disease with this uh, new here, therapeutic yeah. approach. Yeah, but here here is a debate. And earlier you mentioned the vaccine as well. And Professor Wu, I'm going to put this to you. You know, there is this school of thoughts that China should import the foreign vaccines because the whole world practically have been tested on them. And these uh, these you know, imported drugs. But on the other hand, China also has its own and great variety of vaccines which are tested in real practice, clinical tested uh, in Hong Kong, for instance, uh, with uh, millions of doses administered. Um, and, and, and traditional Chinese medicine in treating COVID, either preventing or treating the early stages, even, you know, medium cases. So what is your understanding of China's practice of trying to use as many domestic resources as possible? Well, I think there are a, a number of issues involved here, whether, you know, you import a uh, uh, better vaccine or mRNA vaccines, whether you, uh, you know, invest more in the drug development in the country, the issue is that uh, not only the economy, but also in various other issues as well. For example, the vaccination issue that um, we had a, a 90 percent of the population fully vaccinated. Of course, uh, you could import the mRNA vaccine, but the, the question is whether the combination of the inactive vaccine and the mRNA vaccine as a booster has been tested, whether it's uh, more effective. So you can't simply just uh, buy that uh, mRNA vaccine and inoculate people who already received the inactive vaccines. So there are uh, scientific issues involved as well. But I, I, I do agree with uh, Dr. Vermont's point that maybe that by uh, doing combination of various vaccines, you could but provide better prote uh, protection as well. So uh, this is something actually, I think the decision makers should be uh, ser seriously considering. Dr. Vermont, you want to react to that? Well, I do think that we have data now, uh, published data on what we call heterologous vaccine delivery, namely you use one type of vaccine for primary series and then you boost with another one. And it turns out to be safe. It turns out, out to be highly Im immunogenic. And I personally think, uh, judging from the literature, that would be China's best option. I'm going to ask one last question because the WHO has just warned that a drop in COVID alertness could create deadly new variant. Um, Professor Wu, what is your understanding from a scientific point of view? Uh, does it mean that what China is doing now could potentially create more, you know, deadly new variant or uh, have we all been wrong? I mean, the whole world, have have we been wrong for loosening up bit by bit, not a drop, but loosening up? Well, I think that's an oversimplistic uh, assumption, because uh, if you look at the virus historically, when they uh, evolved in human population, they usually getting uh, weakened. And, uh, and, and also the COVID-19 is, uh, um, you know, it's no exception. Uh, people trying to uh, always compare COVID-19 with uh, flu virus, which is uh, um, a very different virus. 
So um, I think the WHO is right that you can't just simply drop down the, uh, the warning on the COVID-19. Uh, the thing is that the, uh, we're talking about the opening up. It doesn't mean that we just lie flat without, without doing anything. Of course, mm -hmm. some uh, necessary public health measures will be implemented as well. The, the point is we're trying to ease the restrictions to make people move, uh, move around easier and uh, have less impact on the people's life and the economic activities. That was my conversation with Dr. Stan Vermont, Professor Ujuwei, and Jeffrey Schlegelmild. After the break, President Xi Jinping met with EU Council President Charles Michel last week in Beijing. How will the meeting inform bilateral ties? Stay with us. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. German railway company Deutsche Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Chinese President Xi Jinping met with the President of the European Council, Charles Michel, last week in Beijing. President Xi made four observations on relations with the European Union, such as focusing on the right perception, properly managing differences, seeking deeper cooperation, and better managing international affairs. Will there be more clarity in the EU's China approach and vice versa? President Xi quoted an ancient Chinese saying to better describe China's position on the Ukraine crisis. What exactly did he say? I spoke to Michele Giraci, a former Undersecretary of State at the Italian Ministry of Economic Development, joining me from Rome, Italy. Also from Rome, Italy, Daniel Gross, the Director of the Center for European Policy Studies, and from Beijing, Cui Hongjian, Director of the Department of European Studies at the China Institute of International Studies. Well, during the, the meeting, uh, they did discuss uh, and exchange views on the Ukraine crisis. And President Xi um, talked about China's position and principles once again, and he quoted a traditional Chinese saying, which is This roughly translates into, if there is a fire at the city gate, the fish in the pond will suffer as well, because normally there is, you know, a, a river uh, help guarding the city close next to the city gate. And he talked about uh, um, using political ways to resolve the Ukraine crisis is... Uh, a common interest that uh, fits Europe's interest as well as countries on the Eurasian continent. Uh, why do you think he mentions this particular saying? How do you read into it? I think there is a general philosophy that uh, we in Europe uh, are little by little understanding about Chinese uh, attitude to this international crisis. Uh, one is based on the principle of non-interference, uh, uh, even when there are a crisis like the Ukrainian uh, war. So China is trying to maintain this kind of neutral uh, approach, not condemning, neither trying to work uh, for peace. And uh, little by little, I think the role of China may become important because it, it, it is probably the fact that China has not clearly taken sides 
that it allows China to be a credible mediator between the two sides. Of course, if you are a strong supporter of one, it's very hard to be perceived by the other as a reliable uh, mediator. So that's why we have uh, China trying to play a role and cool down things. We even have uh, uh, the Vatican, the Pope, of course, uh, and uh, all the religious leaders try to work for peace. Uh, I think the message is also aimed at uh, saying, you guys in Europe, uh, be careful that you may get hurt more than what you think you will, because maybe the economic impact on Europe is underestimated. Maybe the popular support within the European population for the Ukrainian help, for helping Ukraine, is kind of diminishing, not because people don't support the Ukrainian, but because they realize that after almost one year of war, uh, the situation has not changed and uh, people are paying the price. High gas prices, uh, exporters uh, do not do business with, uh, with Russia, especially my Italian uh, fashion, food and beverages that are cut off from the export market. No one compensates them. General average people need to keep, now we have a law in Italy, you cannot keep more than 19 degrees in home and offices. Uh, and so I think this is the way we could interpret the, the message of the fish at the, at the, and the gate, because uh, it is people who are closer who get hurt. China, you know, politely, Xi Jinping basically told Michelle, we are 8,000 kilometers away, uh, just like there are uh, other 45 wars, uh, thousands of kilometers away from Europe that you do not feel. But this one, you guys be careful, because uh, I think... Uh, uh, Europe, the European Union is playing uh, a very difficult uh, game because uh, we really never had this experience of war at our right. doorsteps. Let's be careful and do not put wood into the fire. Just now you talk about the European expectation for China to help end this war. And I've heard that, you know, uh, from various sources. Uh, Mr. Gross, I'm going to go back to you. Uh, how is this message going to go down, according to your estimate? Because the Europeans seem to have this idea that China plays a crucial role in helping end this war, whereas China believes the key lies in European countries, because you are precisely where the situation, as Michele just said, you know, China is 8,000 kilometers away. So in this readout between the meeting between President Xi and, and uh, Mr. Michel, China actually says it supports the European Union to play a bigger role at mediating in the crisis and establish a balanced, effective and sustainable European security framework. What is your thoughts? Mediation is very difficult for the European Union in this context because this is an emotional, a fundamental issue for the European Union. The European Union was built on the assumption that you have peace, that you do not change frontiers with uh, military force, that you do not invade your neighbors, that was the entire project of the uh, EU. It terminated this idea between France and Germany. And therefore, it just cannot uh, mediate impartially between Ukraine and Russia without betraying its own principles. And that's why somebody who is 8,000 kilometers away is perhaps much more 
qualified to be disengaged, to be looking at real politics. Mr. Tsui, um, it seems that we are, you know, talking two lines. We are on this on two pages here. China believes in this way, and Europeans believing uh, another another solution, another approach. So, is it going to help for these kind of uh, exchanges? Because there have been several meetings, and every time uh, meetings between China and European leaders, every time this issue is raised, different aspects, of course, were talked about. For instance, last time during the meeting between President Xi and the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, China uh, talked about not supporting the use of nuclear weapons. Um, this time, China used this saying. So is it helpful? Are both sides getting closer to each other, towards each other? Uh, if we look at the uh, uh, more than 40 years or even this year, more than 50 years uh, I mean experience for China-EU relations, always to take some more uh, mutual benefits from a difference is one of the golden rule for this uh, cooperation. Because at the very beginning, we are different. So now I think the question is, uh, the key issue is, uh, there will be some challenges to the mutual perception, to the uh, political agenda, between two sides, but it's not a uh, means that uh, both sides should give up their uh, efforts to keep the communication. I think that uh, uh, now we are facing more and more uh, difficulties and challenges. The real reason is uh, not we are far away uh, from each other, just like more than uh, more than thousands of kilometers. The bigger reason is we are closer and closer than before because of the the race of China and China as a, a big power in the world uh, stage. And also European Union side uh, itself tried to take some more, as we know, geopolitical uh, uh, functions. So I think it gives uh, maybe a new format for both sides to get along with each other uh, by uh, you know, building up a new uh, mutual perception. Uh, for example, how, how about China and Europe? Now we are, have a so big, a volume of trade. So now it's a, the question for some uh, European people say that, oh, it's time to reduce uh, uh, our dependency on China. No, mm -hmm. it's not an answer for the question. The answer for the question or issue would be that, uh, yes, now we are uh, interdependent. So now it's a question. Or, so it's time for us to manage our relations and uh, to uh, promote some more, I mean, mutual benefits. Many thanks to Michele Giraci, Daniel Gross, and Cui Hongjian. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lushin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lushin in Beijing. You've got The Point. <laughs> <laughs>